earlier this year, I was very concerned and really warned everybody that I could sense that terrorism was coming back. And I asked all of you to agree with me in prayer against specifically militant Islam, the militant Islam. Not all Muslims are militant, but there is a fraction of militant Islam, and we know them to be terrorist, such as the Taliban. And we need to keep praying against it. That's really the best thing that we can do as spirit-filled, oneness, apostolics. I've, I've had a question in my mind for, for a while now, ever, ever since all this mess began in Afghanistan. And it's been brewing for a while. And I'm not here to debate politically how things were handled, how, how they could have been handled better, or why everything's wrong. But I just have a question. Why is it that the United States and the Allies ended Nazism? And Nazism has really never reemerged. Sure, there's a few skinheads out there with swastikas tattooed on their arm. Most of them are in prison, right? Uh, but Nazism really has never reemerged as a power. There's never been a, a, a Nazi group take over anything. Since World War II, we put an end to it. Why does it seem like militant Islam just keeps on coming back? It's been a problem, a, really a problem since the 60s, but really, really got going in the 1990s. That's just a question I have. Why does it keep on reemerging? Why can't we put it, put it down and make an end of it? Well, I think God has a lot to do with it. You see, God is orchestrating the world in preparation for the things that are to come. And these things can be discovered by studying Bible prophecy. Now, Bible prophecy is a subject that I'm very interested in. I think about it almost every day. I make a lot of notes, and I actually write about it more than I talk about it. I pray about it more than I preach about it, but from time to time, I really feel to open up my mouth and speak to my loyal listeners about this subject. We did a lot of Bible prophecy last year, early on in the wake of COVID-19. I just saw the sign of pestilence as spoken of in Luke chapter 21 as a major indicator for the church to lift up its heads. Our redemption is drawing nigh as Jesus taught us in Luke 21. Welcome to today's episode where we are looking at the prophetic scriptures in depth. Please consider following this podcast. Leave us a great review and rating what you think about this episode. And tell somebody about what Justin C. Gleason is talking about. This podcast is sponsored by absolutely nobody. It is a what they call a crowd-funded ministry, and you can give conveniently and quickly to support the work that goes into creating these episodes 
on Cash App, PayPal, and Venmo. And you can find me, hashtag Justin C. Gleason or at Justin C. Gleason. Scroll down for the details in the episode notes. And you read in Luke 21, it says the distress of nations, the distress of nations would happen. That is what we're seeing right now. A major distress of nations. Afghanistan right now is distressed. The United States of America, although in a different kind of predicament, it, it's distressed in its own way. We're a very divided country. Really, what nation of the world right now is not distressed? There's certain parts of the world that are nice, no problems. I remember on my honeymoon, we, <laughs> Sister G and I went to Jamaica, and something they always say, no problems on the island, man. <laughs> No problems on the island, man. <laughs> I like that. No problems. No problems. Well, <laughs> yeah, whatever. Oh, no. It, in the end of days, the nations of the world are not going to be getting along. You know, I, I, I believe there is a major push for globalism. It's setting up the stage for the beast. But even in that time when there will be like a, a major globalist agenda for the beast set in place, the nations of the world are still not going to get along with each other. There's still going to be war and chaos and havoc made all throughout the earth. So just get used to it. And it's not meant to anger us. It's not meant to disappoint us. It's not meant to cause depression. Rather, when you see things like pestilence and calamity, and you see chaos. You see men's hearts failing them for fear. You see false Christs and false prophets arise. Uh, you see many people uh, walking away from the faith, uh, backsliding, church hopping, getting into all kinds of crazy things. Don't let it break your heart, but rather let it turn your heart to the true one living God, the Lord Jesus Christ, and realize that these are signs that he's coming back. And the distress of nations is one of those great signs. So I want to talk about Bible prophecy in this episode. And with Bible prophecy, it's sometimes difficult to know when to start, where to go to. It's something that's really seen all throughout the Bible. It's everywhere. But especially in books like Daniel and Ezekiel, and, of course, uh, it, you look at the end of the Gospels. Jesus talks a lot about the end of days. Uh, in the book of Acts, first two, several chapters, the apostles preached about the end of days. Paul referenced the end of days. And, the, and then, of course, you get to Revelation. Revelation being the main book regarding the return of the Lord and the final judgment and then eternity either in the new heaven, the new earth, or eternal damnation in the lake of fire. I want to talk about John in the beginnings of his revelation 
some insight that I see into it that I think will be really interesting to you and really help set the stage in your understanding of the book of Revelation. You look in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter number 16. Jesus says, For the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with the angels, and then he will reward each according to his works. How about that? Assuredly, I say to you, there are some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. For those of you that think it's going to be like a socialistic, communistic type of government in the in the resurrection, we're all going to be equal, God's going to make everything fair, <laughs> think again. It says it right there in verse 27. He will reward everyone according to his works. For those of you that say works have nothing to do with salvation, oh yeah, it does. It has a lot to do with your salvation and especially the rewards of your salvation. You will be rewarded in heaven based upon your works. Some people have greater works than other people. They will have greater rewards. And down in the lake of fire, you will be rewarded according to your works. Some people will have more sinful works than others and therefore they will have greater torment. Okay? Moving on, going to verse 28, you see see what Jesus says here? Speaking to his disciples, there are some who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. They will not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. How about that? He's saying, there are some of my disciples, one in particular, He will not die until he sees the kingdom come. That is very interesting. You continue to read into John chapter 21. This is after Jesus has resurrected. He appears on the seashore to his disciples, and it says, Peter, turning around, saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following, that being John. Peter, seeing him, said to Jesus, Lord, what about this man? And Jesus said to him, If I will that he remain till I come, what is that to you? You follow me. This saying went out among the brethren that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if I will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies of these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So again, Jesus in his earthly ministry with his disciples told them, there are some of you that will not die until you see the kingdom of heaven. And Jesus reveals there to Peter on the seashore who that one of them is. It's John. He would remain until Jesus comes back. How about that? And, and that, and that was fulfilled. It happened. Think about this, the disciples, and you got to do a little bit of outside Christian history. One of the disciples, Judas, the betrayer, who got critical with how money was spent. Let me tell you this, how the devil attacks within the church, within the body of believers and disciples. It is criticism. You mark it down. You see somebody in your church that thinks they know more than the pastor, more than the youth pastor, more than the worship leader, that is the devil talking through them. When they start saying the pastor should do this, the pastor should do this, 
start telling the pastor what he should and shouldn't do and start getting critical of how things are run in the church, especially money. That is the devil talking. And before you know it, betrayal sets in, and that's when they become full-blown demon-possessed. It happens in the church. Uh, It sure does. And it never goes well for them. It didn't go well for Judas at all. Committed suicide. Hung himself. Matthew chapter 27. In the year A.D. 33. So if you got a problem with your pastor, problem with other leaders in your church, it's probably the devil talking through you. Sure is. Don't be critical. Don't complain. God hates it. He sure does. James, the son of Zebedee, he was executed by Herod, Acts chapter 12. He didn't see the kingdom of God. He died before it came. Peter, uh, he did much of his ministry in Jerusalem, and uh, according to history, he went to Rome. Some say that he didn't. Some say that he did, but we know in history, he, he died. He was crucified upside down. Didn't see the kingdom of heaven. Andrew came uh, up into uh, uh, Russia and in Asia Minor. Russia in that time was known as the land of the man-eaters. A very dark place, but he came there and brought the gospel, and many were saved. But he was crucified. He did not see the kingdom of heaven. Thomas ministered a lot in eastern Syria and then on over into India. He was pierced through by spears of four Roman soldiers. According to history, he didn't see the kingdom of heaven. Philip ministered in North Africa and in Asia Minor. He was then executed by uh, a Roman proconsul. And this, uh, we don't know his name, this Roman leader. Uh, It is said that Philip converted his wife. And this Roman proconsul didn't like it and ended up executing Philip. Philip did not see the kingdom of heaven. Matthew came into Persia and Ethiopia. He was stabbed to death. Bartholomew went to India, Armenia, Ethiopia, South Arabia, and it ended with him being martyred for the gospel. James, the son of Alphaeus, primarily ministered in Syria. He was clubbed to death. Simon the zealot went to Persia. He was martyred for refusing to sacrifice to the sun god, and he was martyred. Matthias went to Syria, death by burning. Paul, the apostle, primarily ministering in Syria, Asia Minor, Greece, Rome, and he was beheaded in A.D. 66. So all of these apostles, the original apostles, apostles of the Lamb, none of them saw the kingdom of God coming. They all ministered very well, and they gave their lives for it, but none of them saw the kingdom of God. What about John? What happened to John? He was the youngest of these apostles, and he was the last living apostle in the early church age. According to history, after the death of Paul, John became the bishop of the church, and he based his ministry in Ephesus. According to history, he cared for Mary, the mother of Jesus, in the twilight of her life. John encountered a lot of trouble as all the apostles did, greatly, greatly persecuted. Domitian was the emperor in the latter part of his life. According to history, the emperor Domitian ordered the death of John by being boiled in oil. 
But history says that as John was put into that burning pot of oil, a normal man, his skin would have burnt off and melted right there, and he would have suffered a painful, horrible, gruesome death. But history says the oil could not burn John. He survived it. And Domitian tried to do several other things to kill John. But realizing that he couldn't, he became suspicious, and instead he just banished him to an island in the Roman Empire called Patmos, a place that they sent prisoners to do many things, such as dig in the mines. There is no official history of John's death. There's no history that says he ever came back from Patmos to Ephesus and he died there. None of that. doesn't say he died in Patmos. There is literally no official record of his death. And it is my opinion that John experienced exactly what Jesus said would happen to him. He would not taste death until he saw, until he saw the kingdom of God come. And he testifies of it in Revelation chapter 1. He writes to the churches, the seven churches of Asia, I, John, this is Revelation 1, I, John, both your brother and companion in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patience of Jesus Christ, was on the island that is called Patmos for the word of God and for the testimony of Jesus Christ. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as a trumpet saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, and what you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that spoke to me, and having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven golden lampstands, one like the Son of Man, and the seven lampstands which you saw are the seven churches. Hmm. You think about that. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. Some say that was a Sunday. He was there on Patmos as an old man, thinking his ministry was over. But early Sunday morning, Jesus appeared to him. Come on, somebody. (laughs) I don't know about that. Nowhere else in Scripture is the first day of the week referred to as the Lord's Day. Many times in the book of Acts and in other places, the first day of the week is called the first day of the week. I'm a literalist when I read the Bible. John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. The Lord's Day, or the day of the Lord, as spoken about in various places in the Holy Bible, especially in the prophets, is not a Sunday, and neither is it the seventh day, the Sabbath. But it is the day of the Lord's vengeance against his enemies. That's right. The prophets foresaw it. They called it the day of the Lord. Isaiah said it is a day of wrath. It is a day of judgment. And what I think John is telling us here is that he did not see the coming of the Lord physically 
but he saw it spiritually. Just as Jesus said, there are some standing here that will not die until they see the kingdom of God coming. The minute Jesus or the minute John turned around and saw Jesus standing there in front of him, the word that his Messiah, his rabbi, his master, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of God, it was fulfilled right there. He saw the day of the Lord, not physically, but spiritually. That is how powerful the word of God is. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. I'm sure John may have doubted it in his life, saying, maybe I'll never see it. Maybe I will die. You know, he's in his 90s there on Patmos. He's an old man, an old, old man back then, 90s. I mean, it's old to this day, but really old back then. Men and women just didn't survive that. He's probably thinking, I'm here on Patmos, away from the churches, away from my family, away from the disciples, away from the brethren, away from everything, and I'm here all alone. And I'm an old man about to die here in this prison camp. The word of the Lord, it may not be fulfilled. It may not happen. But in that moment, probably in doubt, that is when Jesus manifested. Can I tell you this? If God said it's going to happen, it may happen on your death day. Doesn't matter. If God said it's going to happen in your lifetime, it will happen. I don't care how old you have to wait. I don't care what you have to go through. If you have to suffer persecution, if you have to survive burning oil, if you have to be banished to a faraway land, if God said it's going to happen, it is going to happen. Amen. Praise the Lord. And it happened to John. He saw the day of the Lord. The prophecy, the revelation of Jesus Christ, was set up for a message to the church first. And then after that, we really don't know who the rest of Revelation is written to. I personally believe one of the reasons why we have a lot of trouble interpreting the book of Revelation is it's not so much written for this generation and for this uh, age, but rather the age that is to come. That's how prophecy works. Think about it. Isaiah prophesied 800 years before Jesus was born. And he spoke, saying, Behold, a virgin would conceive. How about that? I'm sure when he wrote that, preached that to the people, they thought, what, How does that happen? What does that mean? That don't make sense. They probably didn't. Now it makes sense to us because it's been fulfilled. That's how a lot of prophecy that is spoken in a dark saying works. You don't know what it means until it's fulfilled. And then you can look back and say, God knew what he was talking about. And you discover the will of God through fulfilled prophecy. Amen. Isaiah said he would be numbered amongst the transgressors. Well, what does that mean? <laughs> Give us more, Isaiah. I'm sure the people 800, year, uh, 800 B.C. thought. Well, we know what that means. They hung him on a cross in the middle of two thieves. He was buried among the rich, Isaiah said. I'm sure they had no idea what that meant. Well, we know Joseph of Arimathea, well-to-do, prominent man, had a tomb, a new tomb, and that is where they buried the body of Jesus. A lot of revelation is going to be like that. We're looking at it wondering, what does it mean? Well, when those things are fulfilled, that generation, the end-time generation, will know exactly what it means. 
But before all of the fulfillment of seeing the day of the Lord happen, Jesus spoke to John saying, I want you to correct my church. I want you to set a few things straight. John looks at Jesus and he says, I saw, I saw him. uh, 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 I, I looked and saw he was standing in the midst of seven golden candlesticks. I don't think this was, and that's King James. You look at the new King James, it says lampstand. The lampstands, golden lampstands. I don't think these were like candles like you and I have in our homes today. But rather what I think he is standing in the midst of is seven golden menorahs. uh, uh, Seven golden uh, lampstands like they had in the Old Testament in the temple. That's what he has seen. He's seeing seven golden lampstands. And you later read and find out that these lampstands represent the church. That is the symbol of the church in the New Testament. It's not a fish. A fish represents discipleship. A cross does not so much represent a church. It represents the suffering and the victorious power of Jesus. But you want to know what the spiritual symbol of the church is, the icon of the church? It is a menorah. That's right. I've seen it in my dreams. I've seen it in my visions. Churches are represented as a golden lampstand in the spirit world. In Exodus chapter 30, God commands the Levites. He says to Aaron, Aaron shall burn it on it. This is the lampstand. Sweet incense every morning when he tends the lamps. He shall burn incense on it. And when Aaron lights the lamps at twilight, he shall burn incense on it a perpetual incense before the Lord throughout your generations. Okay? You have to understand this about the Bible. It's detailed in some places, but in some places it's not very exhaustive. It doesn't give all the details, but you look at some outside history, it'll shed some light on it. I have studied in rabbinical traditions. I, it's it's a, a hobby of mine. I don't really preach a lot about it. I used to try, but <laughs> I found out if you start getting out there in a lot of that Jewish stuff, it turns into a yawn fest at church. <laughs> Probably one of the reasons why I created this podcast, because I know the listeners, the loyal audience that you are, you love stuff like this, the deep stuff. I'm taking a trip to the Holy Land, the land of Israel, November 2022. There is absolutely no place like it. On one of the first or second days that you're there, we will travel up to the top of Mount Carmel, where Elijah stood after killing all the prophets of Baal. It hadn't rained in three and a half years, and he said at my word, it shall not rain. He literally had the power of God working through his words to the point where he could control the skies. That's how powerful God is. And it says he looked out over the sea and he told his servant, what do you see? And the servant said, I see a cloud arising up out of the sea the size of a man's hand. You'll be able to stand on the very same mountain in the very same place that Elijah and his servant stood and you'll be able to look out over that sea. That is just one of few of many places where you will see your Bible come to life. That's right. You then look towards the east off that same mountain. You know what you see? The Valley of Armageddon. The very place, the final battle, where Christ will destroy the Antichrist and his army. It's all there. It's real. I can't wait to see it, and I hope you'll come to Israel with me to see it for yourself. 
check out samsontours.com. Go to the tours, the group tours, scroll down until you see me and my good friend, our guide, Ariz Berkowitz. And all the information is there. Check it out. I hope you can come. I want you to. You can also follow and contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Justin C. Gleason. Reference the show notes for all the details. Podcasting is the future. But I found out some things about uh, the details of what God is saying here to Aaron and the priest when they tend the lamps, when they relight the lamps at twilight. And according to rabbinical tradition, what the priest would do is he would come in to the holy place to clean, to clean, to tend the golden lampstand every day. And what he would do is, and, and you think about this, it's you know covered in thick uh, animal skins, and the, and then in Solomon's day, you know, uh, you know, hard materials. It's dark in there. The only light that is in there is the golden candlestick. That's why we are the light of the world. We are the menorah. That's the church light of the world, right? But you know, it wasn't hooked up to uh, uh, an electrical outlet. <laughs> it, it had to burn through oil and through wicks and real fire, like. A candle, but it wasn't used with candle wax. Rather, it was used with a flammable oil. And what the priest would do is he would come in and stand in front of that golden lampstand. There would be seven lamps coming out of one stick. You have to look it up on the internet how it possibly looked. It was one candlestick with seven burning lamps. And according to tradition, what the priest would do is he would walk in there. Some of the lamps would already be burnt out from overnight, but there was always at least one lamp that was lit that never went out according to tradition, and it was the one that was the most westward, the one that was closest to the Ark of the Covenant. According to tradition, that lamp never burnt out ever at night. (laughs) How about that? Mm. Closer to stay to God, your light will never burn out. Praise the Lord. That'll preach. So what he would do is he would get up there and he would clean out five, five of the golden lamps, uh, golden lamps, and it was usually the five that were most eastward. He would clean them out but leave two of them lit so he could have light in the tabernacle. Read later on in Exodus, you find out that the same time that he would clean out the lampstand, he would put fresh incense into the altar of incense that stood before uh, the Lord, the Ark of the Covenant. That's what he did. He would walk into that menorah, clean out, scoop out any excess oil, take out the wick. By the way, the wicks were made from the old linen garments of the priest. As the garments would wear out, they would make, take those garments and make wicks out of it. That's what they burnt, burnt it. I don't have time to get into that. It's not really important. But th- that's how they would clean the lamp clean out five of the lamps. He would then go over, put fresh incense into the altar of incense, and then come out and clean the remaining two. So you have cleaning five, do the altar of incense, then clean the remaining two. You read later on in Revelation, the words that the Lord spoke to John to give to the church. 
God says, I want you to speak to seven churches, Ephesus, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Smyrna, and Philadelphia. Seven churches. You know what's interesting? Is God commands John to only rebuke five of those churches. Two of them were not rebuked. Ephesus, Pergamos, Theatira, Sardis, and Laodicea were severely rebuked, but Smyrna and Philadelphia were not rebuked. You want to know why? Well, Jesus is our high priest in heaven. What is he doing? He's appearing to John that day to clean up the churches. <laughs> and he fulfills it in the same pattern as the priest would clean the golden lampstand in the tabernacle. And boy, did he ever. Ephesus had to get cleaned up. They left their first love. Pergamus had to get cleaned up because it tolerated heresy. Theatira tolerated idolatry and immorality. Sardis was a dead church. Laodicea was lukewarm. And the Lord wanted to clean up those churches. And then he later on would come back and clean up Smyrna and Philadelphia, right? So that is what is going on there. John sees the day of the Lord, but before all of it's fulfilled, all of it happens, it's time to focus on the church of the living God. But God didn't just want to clean up the churches and rebuke the churches and leave them there hopeless. Oh, no. He gave them promises to all of those who would repent and get it right. God says to Ephesus, if you will repent, follow me, obey me, I will give you access to the tree of life. To Smyrna, he said, I will give you a crown of life. To Pergamos, he said, I will give you some of the hidden manna and a white stone with a new name written on it. Hidden manna. You know what hidden manna is? That was the, the omer of manna that was kept in the Ark of the Covenant. You see, manna in the wilderness, when Israel ate of it, they had to eat all of it the day that it was given to them. If they left it overnight and didn't eat it, the next morning there would be worms inside of it. It was a command of God, leave none of it. But Aaron, Moses, took a little jar of manna, put it in a little pot, an omer, you know, about the size of a can of Coke, put it there in the Ark of the Covenant, and that became hidden manna because nobody could see it, but it was manna that never went away. And Jesus is saying, when you come to heaven, I'm going to reopen the Ark of the Covenant that's in heaven and give you some of that manna. Probably give it to us on the marriage supper of the Lamb. Praise God. That angel food. I think the angels are going to cook for us on the, um, by the way, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Angels are going to cook for us like they cooked for Israel in the wilderness. Praise God. And he says uh, to Pergamus, I'll give you a white stone with a new name written on it. There's a theory about that. Pergamus was heavy into Asclepius worship. Uh, the Roman god of healing. They would go to the temples of Asclepius, people with uh, pains, ailments, sickness, and disease, and they would go there. The priest would drug them up heavily on drugs to make them feel good. Sounds a lot like pharmacia, pharmacies, right? Drug you up, man. Here's a pill, man. Take it and feel good, man. Well, that's just the culture of the Western world. Here's drugs. Get comfortable, man. Take a pill, man. Uh, but the Christians are called to be sober. Praise the Lord. But it, the Asclepius temples, after they were supposedly healed by Asclepius, uh, they would go out and carve their name on a white pillar out there as a testimony to the power of Asclepius. Jesus is saying, I am your great, I'm the great physician, I'm your healer. 
you follow me, I will give you a white stone with a new name on it. So that's just an idea. To Theatira, the Lord promises them power over the nations in the morning star. Sardis, white garments and a name in the book of life. Philadelphia, pillar in the temple and God's new name and a city written upon them. And then Laodicea, to sit with Christ on his throne. So think about that. To the churches, he promised the tree of life, the crown of life, hidden manna, a white stone, a new name, power over the nations, and the morning star, white garments, and a name in the book of life. To be a pillar in the temple, and God's new name, and a city written upon them, and to sit with Christ on his throne. Do those sound like blessings on the earth? Do those sound like the benefits of this present church age here in this world? Absolutely not. All of those blessings are heavenly. All of those blessings are things that are up there in paradise. You know what I think the Lord is saying to the churches? If you get it right, you are going to make the rapture. You are going to make the catching away of the church and ultimately be up there in heaven in what he said in Revelation 1. God has made us kings and priests with him. You want to know what heaven's going to be like? I know some of you preachers out there think, I'm going to play golf every day with Jesus. Some of you think, no, me and Jesus are going to catch catfish all day in heaven, right? Uh, Some of you women think, oh, the Lord is going to let me shop at boutiques all day in heaven. Well, (laughs) study the life of kings and priests. You want to know what heaven will be like for all of us? The life of a king and a priest. We will rule and serve the Lord. That's what life will be like, okay? Maybe some of you will get to play golf. I don't know. But I'd rather be a king than a golfer any day. I'd rather be a priest than catching pretty fish all day. Mm. That's what I'd rather be in New Jerusalem. And, and, and after all the churches, all, all of these, uh, the five rebukes, and then all of the blessings to the seven churches, John, is fi- a window is open in heaven. It's a typology of the catching away of the church before all of the destruction happens. And what does John see when he gets up there? The throne of God, one sitting upon the throne, not three, one, one God up there. He sees an emerald rainbow, lightnings, thunderings, voices, all of that, seven burning lamps, the sea of glass, four living creatures, the 24 elders, all of those things. You know, this, that's what he sees in heaven. Before he saw the four horsemen of the apocalypse, before he saw a bat on, and the locust and the scorpion demons. Before he saw four spirits come out from underneath the Euphrates, before he saw the red dragon, uh, before he saw the beast, the false prophet, the, the, uh, the, the three unclean frogs, before he saw uh, the, the, the harlot, mystery Babylon, before the scarlet beast, before the final judgment, for all, before the lake of fire, all of those things, he first saw the revelation of Jesus Christ. Glory to God. Before all of the judgment, before all of the grotesque things coming up out of the sea and the land, he saw the day of the Lord. He saw the seven churches cleansed. He saw the seven heavenly promises to the church. He saw the seven aspects of the heavenly throne room. He saw the Lord seated in majesty. He saw the heavenly host worship God Almighty. You know why? Because. He followed and held on 
to the prophetic word that Jesus said, there would be someone here that would remain and not die until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And that's what John saw. He didn't see it come physically. He saw that it would come spiritually, just as Jesus said would happen. Mm. Praise God. It's a typology of what it will be like for the church that is alive at the catching away of the church. First Thessalonians chapter 4, it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain, everybody say remain, <laughs> alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Thus shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. That's right. Just as John was alive and turned around and saw Jesus standing right there in the midst of seven golden candlesticks, and he heard a voice saying, Come up, and he saw a window and ascended up into the heavens. In the same typology, those who are ready for him, those who are ready to meet the Lord in the air, the day will come when we will look up on a cloudy day and see the Lord in the sky, and he will say, come up. Those who are alive and remain for that day will be brought up. That's right. What I'm really trying to say to you is you need to remain in your church. In the last days, seducing spirits are being released in the world. The spirit of error is being released in the world to deny the apostles' doctrine, to deny truth, and transfer to a church that teaches false doctrine, to be carried away with all types of heresy. That is not the type of people that God is coming back for. Oh, no, he is coming back for a loyal bride. He's not coming back for the people that run away, walk away. Oh, no, he is coming back for the people that stick with it and stay with it. You ever heard of a runaway bride? You know, a bride that's walking down the aisle. She sees her, <laughs> sees the, the, the groom and the, and the preacher and stuff, and she gets gold feet and runs out of there. That's how some of you are living right now. You are running away from God. You're running out of the church. You're running out of the wedding ceremony. The only way you're going to make it is if you remain. Be loyal. Be faithful. This pandemic has caused a lot of people to become discouraged. The things that the Lord has done to shift a lot of the church, it's caused a lot of people to become bitter and full of hate. And questioning and second-guessing, it's the voice of the devil to try to shake you, to try to make you mad, to make you bitter. And it's all designed to get you to not remain. But for those of us that have suffered persecution, for those of us who have been uh, wrongly, falsely accused and have kept our silence and held our peace during those times, God's going to take vengeance. And he will fight the battle for you, believe me. Oh, he will, and he did for John. He sure did. Nobody really knows exactly what happened to John. Maybe he is one of the two witnesses 
in the book of Revelation. Some teach that. I don't know, but this I do know. What Jesus said would happen, it happened to him. He stuck with it. He never quit. He never gave up, even though he was the last one there. Everybody else died. Everybody else was gone. It was just him on Patmos, and that's when the visions came. May the Lord appear to you in your dreams and in your visions. May the Lord speak to you through his word. Praise God. Stay alive, remain, and be ready for the coming of the Lord. I'm Justin Gleason. Thank you very much. (laughs) 